Welcome to They Live by Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I am joined as always by my co-hosts, Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. How are you doing today, guys? Hey. I'm uh, pretty tired. I closed last night for work and then opened at 6 a.m. this morning, so I'm oh, wow. feeling it. And drove an hour each way, right? Yeah, yeah. So I left last night a little after 10. Got home a little after 11, went to sleep, woke up at 4.40 this morning, oh and then God. drove an hour to be there by 6. That is not what they call cash money. Um, no, no, not, not at all. <laughs> um, so just to address a couple of things before we get rolling, um, you might notice that there's been a bit of a break since the last podcast. We're in a little bit of a hiatus. Uh, just took a little bit of a break. I know Chris went away, and he'll probably tell us about his travels, but... Uh, yeah, we just took a little bit of a break. We're back to be, we're, we're glad to be back, though. Uh, it's always nice to be back. Um, just a sort of biggest piece of news that we've been working on in the interim. Um, for you listeners who maybe want to be able to start engaging with us, and we definitely want to be hearing from you guys. Uh, we are actually going to be starting our own Patreon. Um, so you can come and you can chat to us there. You can message us. We are going to be having some um some conferencing kind of stuff, maybe sort of later in the year and nothing planned out for sure on that, but we are going to start trying to get a bit more engaged with you guys, the listeners. So it'd be great to hear, you know, what you guys are thinking on a sort of week by week basis. And um, we are going to be having two tiers available in our Patreon. So there is the avid listener, which is the entry tier, which is going to be, I'm going to do it in dollars. I know most of you guys listening are in the U S so it's going to be $2 a month. So you know, less than what you'd pay for a cup of coffee at Starbucks, I'm sure. Um, what that gets you is basically unedited versions of our podcasts, and they are going to be available a few days before the, the fully edited versions as well. So not only do you get an early sneak peek, you get to listen to Zach practicing how to pronounce foreign directors' names. You get to listen to Chris going for water breaks. You get to listen to me go on rants about Ridley Scott. It's <laughs> You get so much bang for your buck. Um we are going to try and include unedited versions of our interviews that we do uh, with our industry figures. Just let you know in advance, we may not be able to do that every time just from a legal standpoint, if they don't agree to it, we will sort of post them as they become available. And then the second tier, we are only doing two tiers in our Patreon. Uh, it's called the chartered subscriber. Uh, that's $5 a month. So a little bit more, uh, you obviously still get the unedited podcast like you do on the first tier but you also will get something that we're really excited about, which is going to be a newsletter that we're going to be doing on a monthly basis. It's going to include written versions of our thoughts about the films we discussed in the podcasts in that month. It's going to have newsletter exclusive reviews that are not going to be available anywhere else, either on Reddit or on our website or anywhere else, uh, as well as other sort of fun things like Chris is going to talk about what stuff he's going to be watching if you want to watch along with him some hints and sort of uh, nods towards people we may be interviewing in the future. Uh, lots of bits and pieces. It's going to be super fluid. We're going to try and sort of make it as jam-packed uh, as we can to make it a little bit worth it for you guys. So uh, the Patreon, which I'll put the link in the description of the podcast, but it is patreon.com forward slash they live by film. Uh, like I said, if you listen to the podcast, if you want to maybe support us for keeping the website going, because uh, obviously, you know, those costs for the domain and everything like that. If you want to support us a little bit more and engage with us, talk to us a little bit more than you can already, um, come join us there. So before we talk about the first film, uh, Chris, any any wild stories from your, your trip? 
I, I'm just I'm just awestruck at how great those deals sound. How much we're getting, how much we're giving away for, for such little money. Uh, one of the stories that came to mind was um, that we just did a we just recorded a podcast uh, with with a guy from Flickr Alley, who was the first time that uh, I know that I can remember where at the beginning of the interview he said, "Oh, you guys Nicholas Ray fans," and it actually took me a second. So like, I just, I wasn't used to people making that connection. So they live by night so fast. Um, anyways, so it was, it was great. Um, and I don't know if that part's going to make it in the final edit because uh, of some, some audio stuff on his side, but that would be in the Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, no, uh, okay, not, many, so, not many people get the reference. Yeah, it's good that he got it straight away. <laughs> no, it was amazing. I was like, yeah, literally it kind of stopped me for a second. I was like, what? Am I like looking for Nicholas <laughs> Ray film in the background or something? I was like, oh, the, the name of our, yeah, yeah. Um, I thought uh, it was a Carpenter reference, honestly, so I didn't even know. I learned something today. <laughs> <laughs> Founding member, Zach Bryant. Um, that's amazing. We Okay, so just quickly, we went to Colorado, never been to the Rocky Mountain National Park before. Um and actually didn't go because it turns out it's just like Disney World where you wait for everything. To, like there was literally like a two and a half hour wait to get in. And that's not fun anytime, especially not fun with a four year old. So we, we, we nope that. But we were there. And while we were there, there was elk mating season, which I don't know if you all know much about elk, but they're kind of like moose, but they look different, a little different. And they they have actual things called harems that they so they go like a guy will come down from the mountain and find a group of, of women elk called moose. I mean, called cows. So he'll go find a bunch of these female elk and uh, literally sit in the middle of town <laughs> in, in a grassy area. And you just have to be really careful because they get aggressive. So we spent the week uh, dodging aggressive horny elk and uh, hiking. It was really fun. Now, yeah. there you go. So you know, no. You now know not to go there around this time if you don't want to have to avoid horny elk. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say it's a cool experience because they make the sound. If, if, okay, okay, last thing I'll say. Elk are massive creatures, right? Like we were driving down the road and there was a, there was a male like walking next to us who was as tall as our car and his antlers went above our car, right? And we were driving kind of like this little minivan because we have kids, whatever, right? So he's like a big creature. And the sound they make is like a baby cooing. And that's their mating call. It's so like the physicality of the animal doesn't match the sound at all. It's the craziest thing. They, they're like, <laughs> and like, it, it just does. It's the weird, like it takes a second because you see their lips moving and you're like, that's coming from him. Um, anyways, that's my last story around that. <laughs> Well, uh, speaking of horny creatures and sexually frustrated creatures, we'll talk about our first film. Um, so uh, we're going to start off uh, this this uh, week's discussion with a Stone Cold classic that is Ernst Lubitsch's 1942 comedy To Be or Not To Be. Um, just to give you a brief, a brief over sort of view from uh, IMDb, if you're not familiar with it. Um, it doesn't sound as dark as this is going to read. During the Nazi occupation of Poland, an acting troupe becomes embroiled in a Polish soldier's efforts to track down a German spy. This is not a political thriller. This is definitely a comedy and one of the funniest films I have seen in a long, long time. Um, I know this is one of Chris's absolute favorite films ever, so I'm going to let Chris start off. Um, might as well start positive and hope to go on from there. 
Uh, I think it's it's either eight or nine for me currently. Um, and, you know, with time, it, it could even go higher. I just think that I like Ernst Lubitsch a lot. I like a lot of his films a lot. Uh, and, and maybe there's a film that I'll see eventually that I like more. But I don't know that I've ever seen a film that's just so mischievous, but is is structured in such a way that you don't really catch it. Like I, I kind of wrote about this, but I just I feel like I have to talk about this. It just makes me laugh so hard. The the ter- just imagine in 1942 a movie co- a movie coming out where Jack Benny opens up the movie by yawning "Hail Hitler." Later on, Hitler comes in and he says, "Hail myself." <laughs> um, uh, there's uh, and, and then there's I think it's the third reference I believe is uh, one of the people talking to Carol Lombard who looks striking in this movie she's stunning in this film she's wearing a beautiful gown and he looks at her and he says when you meet the Fuhrer you'll be screaming Heil Hitler in three hours or something like that and like that that happened in like 1942 it's so smart it's so intelligent and it's so subtle and that to me is like a perfect analogy of this whole movie. Like there's so many things going on that are like these double entendres that if you catch it, you're like, how did he get this past the censors? Like it's full of sexual jokes, but he does it in such a way that like, I would feel comfortable with my kid watched it because there's nothing obscene about it or there's nothing like controversial about it. He just presents it as like, this is the reality. And, and the characters kind of live in that in a very uh, natural way. Uh, it, it's, I could literally go on about this movie forever, but uh, I, I'll stop there for now. I want to hear y'all's thoughts. I love it very much, and I love it more every time I see it. Just before we go into uh, mine and Zach's thoughts, any do, do we have the the ranking on They Shoot Pictures? Yes, I like, absolutely. I like to hear those. Uh, I, if well, this is not in the top 100, I'll be very surprised. Yeah, me too. Um, let's see. That's not one second. Um, you know what? Go. Let me let me come back to me because this is. Uh, I might have to close this program down and open it again. No worries. Well, I know I know it's on the Sight and Sound Top Two Fifty. That's actually how I first watched it. I I didn't watch it first as part of the film club. Um, I was earlier in the year. I was trying to sort of watch as much of the Sight and Sound Top Two Fifty that I could, and I'm still only about a hundred or hundred and maybe sixty or seventy in maybe i've gotten close to 200 i can't exactly remember but this is one of the films i watched sort of during that streak where i was watching a lot of those movies and it really it really caught me off guard like i'd seen one other lubich film before this um and i always forget the name of it it's the one uh with the two sort of thieves and they become lovers um that's gonna annoy me now uh, I'll need to look it up because otherwise I will get very frustrated. I'm pretty sure it's like his most famous. Well, maybe not his most famous one. Uh, where is it? Do you know what one I'm talking about, Chris? Off the top of my head, it's just completely left me. Sorry, uh, um, not you're not talking about Trouble, Ninochka, you're talking- No, Trouble in Paradise. Trouble in Paradise. Yeah, I just found it here. Yeah. yeah, I'd seen that and I thought it was great. Um, but this one just like knocked me, knocked me back. Just. I don't think I've laughed out loud this much watching a film since Dr. Strangelove and I love Dr. Strangelove. So that is a very high compliment as far as, as far as I go. Um, 
I don't sure. not like comedy as much as maybe Zach doesn't like comedy, but <laughs> which we'll get to. But um, this, yeah, this was just it just really knocked me back. I was constantly laughing. The jokes are amazing in this film, and it has probably one of the best sort of fake out startings of ever of any other film ever. Probably great fake out to start. So perfect. So just that's I think it's I'd love to start there uh, quickly. It is literally number one hundred. Okay, perfect. That's that's a really good place for this film, I think, personally. Yeah, I, I could I could have it be higher, but I think as we've talked about now countless times, anything in the top 200, 250 is sort of, yeah, like it's Yeah, it's that's great. really good. Absolutely. Let's hear from our resident joke master, Zach. What, what, what did you think <laughs> of the film? Okay. Um, I, I'm trying to figure out how I want to preface this. So, um, I know every, I, I think the automatic is that I didn't like. I actually did enjoy it. Um, kind of the way I wanted to go into this, because I've kind of been thinking about the film in general uh, since I watched it. And I haven't even put a rating to it. Like, if you go on my letterbox, I haven't, because I, I, I always feel like I'm missing, like, this vital information where I'm not a big fan of, like, comedies, and I have such a blind spot, especially towards this era, not just in comedies, but in general, Um most of the stuff I've seen from the forties is a lot of horror movies and stuff like that. Um, so I kind of wanted to go into this really just trying to, I guess, get that context. Cause I know you, uh, Chris and uh, Adam, I know both of you guys kind of understand that context a lot better than I do. I do want to talk about like, uh, a lot of things I did like, um, I did appreciate some of the jokes that I did get, um, a lot of the ones that Chris is talking about, uh, I didn't catch. So that'd be great if I, you know, down the line when I rewatch it. Uh, now, there's certain things, illusions that I did catch. I'm guessing Taika Waititi is a fan of this film. It's the only thing I can yeah. figure. Um, every time the Heil, Heil Hitler thing came up, I was like, oh, okay. I know that joke. I've, I've seen that one. Um, but <laughs> I, I don't want to come off as like really apathetic towards it because I wasn't. I just, I, I feel like I this is probably like the one I feel like I have the least to say because I feel like I'm just missing so much. So I'm more interested in what you guys have to say about it. Cause anything I say is not going to be incredibly interesting to be honest. <laughs> well, look, we appreciate your honesty on it anyway. Um, yeah. Chris, I'm sure you probably have a little bit more you want to talk about it before we do. Um, I just wanted to talk about just quickly how, how great the cast is in general. It's a really great, ensemble like i know obviously carol lombard is is kind of the star maybe she's not really the star she's obviously the biggest name anyway on the cast yeah. mm-hmm. um i actually i was actually kind of a little bit disappointed that she doesn't do more um as obviously carol lombard she's known as like the queen of the screwball comedy um yeah. so i was actually kind of disappointed in lombard's performance only so that she just didn't really get a whole lot of a chance to do a whole lot of jokes really because she was kind of more tied to the more serious aspect of the plot, you know, with the love triangle between her and her actor husband and the soldier. And then, you know, her being involved in this plot to try and, you know, get back into Warsaw. So maybe yeah. because of that she was kind of tied down and too much in serious aspect to maybe be able to do lots of jokes. But, um, but the, I just think the cast in general is phenomenal. They all had just really great, um, chemistry with another like you would swear that this like they were a real acting troupe they kind of mm-hmm. all played to each other's strengths they knew how the other person ticked and you know Lubitsch just had a really good sense of how to get the best from each actor um, so I think just the cast in general were, were all fantastic 
So just real quick on Carol Lombard. So I had the exact same feeling. So because I've seen this movie, I don't know, 10 times now, this time around, I almost didn't watch it, but I decided to watch it with a commentary just to see if I could kind of pick up anything. Mm-hmm. And there was like a 20 minute story behind Carol Lombard, which I won't tell, <laughs> but <laughs> the short version is um, this, there was like a, a couple of really big producers in Hollywood around this time. The producer of this movie, I was just trying to find it quickly. I'll find his name in a minute, but he was one of the big ones. He was a co-founder. Uh, he was a, a partner in United Artists. He was one of the big producers, but the last like four or five films he had were, didn't make money. And the way the studio system was set up, he was having a hard time getting financing. And so in order for a bank to help finance this film and get it finished, he actually go, had to go find a big star. And so this small female, part, this relatively small female part, certainly not the lead of the film, they thought would be a great place to go find a big star, somebody who would be able to do it. Carol Lombard had a, a passion for anti-fascist sort of rhetoric. And, and uh, she was big into like promoting things that were anti-Nazi. So even though the role was small, she worked out a deal with Jack Benny where even though he had a bigger part, she got top billing. And her involvement in the film got the financing they need and got this movie finished. And there's this great story where Jack Benny apparently had a pretty big ego and he was frustrated that she got top billing. And she said, yeah, but you get all the lines. And that was enough to satisfy his ego because nobody would have cast Jack Benny as Shakespeare. And I think it was his chance to kind of take a slightly different angle and play in this big like Shakespearean kind of lead role, even though it was funny, like even though, you know, he was like the perfect guy to do it. So there's a longer story to that, but that's the short version and uh, made me feel a little bit better about Carol Lombard's role because she was way underutilized, right? She's so funny. Yeah, that's that, that, that makes so much more sense because I, I was genuinely just wondering, you know, why would for a, a role like this, why I go to the, the hassle of, of casting Lombard and probably paying a, a hefty chunk to get her in the film uh, just to not really use her a whole lot. So that, that makes that makes a lot more sense. I feel better about it now too, that you've explained yeah. that. Right? Oh, yeah. I was yes, going to ask, Chris, since um, you know you know a pretty good amount about uh, about the film, I know The Great Dictator came out a couple years beforehand, and it had mm-hmm. a lot of difficulty getting shown. It, obviously, it was in a different part of the war. The war hadn't been going on as long as it had by the time this film released. Or was there a lot of difficulty with the financing specifically on getting this shown, if you know? Um, I, I don't know specifically related to distribution, but critics were split. So there was basically... Again, everything I'm about to say, I just literally heard from the commentary. I'm not, but I, I don't mind regurgitating. <laughs> so um, there was the critics that didn't get it. And there were actually some critics at that time that felt like he was somehow promoting German propaganda. Like they tried to make the case that like he was, it was, this was an anti, or this was a pro-Nazi film, which is so dumb. Um, and there was, a, and, and the most, I guess back then, like there was like the critic, like, you know, in Ratatouille, there's like the critic that the food critic that has to be won over. I guess in the US at that time, there was like the critic and he didn't get the movie. So it actually got a lot of negative press when he wrote a bad, kind of like a scathing review on this film. But there was a second half of the, like, I guess viewership and critics that got it and thought it was like this outrageously wild movie they couldn't believe was made and they like were obsessed with it. So it made pretty good money, even though there was like sort of half the country that didn't get it and felt like, it's not right. You know, it was too soon, too close to the, what was going on in the world. And like, was this confused about, was he actually pro-Nazi and some of that kind of stuff? 
Yeah, because 42 is a huge turning point for World War II. So it's kind yeah. of interesting to have it released then, because obviously the U.S. had entered right at the end of 41. Um, yeah. So everything's at kind of full force at that point. Yeah, actually, now that you say that, that did bring up one thing that I kind of forgot about. They said that in that sense, there's actually the, the country was ready for this because there had been a lot of anti-Nazi propaganda that led up to them getting involved. So they were in a way they were ready for this. I, they did say that. Um, this is interesting you bring this up because I was I, I was I was actually really shocked when I read about that this was a thing that the U.S. were concerned about anti-Nazi propaganda. I first came across it when I was going through the Fritz Lang films. And there's a Fritz Lang film from 1941 called Manhunt, which mm. similar to this is a more serious film, but it does also show off sort of the Nazis in a negative light. And, you know, it's very much a, a, an anti-Nazi film, which makes sense because it came from Lang, who obviously fled um, Nazism. Mm. But there was a quote I remember reading, or maybe it wasn't a quote, but um, it was someone in the Hayes office when it was trying to get sort of um, past the censors. Apparently the Hayes office, someone in there, one of the top guys, called it a hate film because it was you know whatever because you know it was it was negative uh, towards the nazi regime because the u.s is still neutral at that time so it's i just thought it was interesting sort of parallel because you were sort of bringing it up i i would not be surprised if this film did maybe have difficulty maybe in 1942 not so much because obviously it was it was turning towards you know u.s getting involved they haven't been involved already i can't remember you probably guys probably know more than i do but um I, like even just the previous year, 1941, the Hayes office were wanting to refuse to put the film out because it was um, pro. If I remember, if I remember the quote correctly, it was described as pro-British propaganda rather than anti-Nazi propaganda, which is insane to think about. Um, but uh, yeah, especially since the U.S., while neutral, was supplying arms to the Allies, like at that point was already like we're not right. picking sides but here's some stuff yeah here's, you know side, yeah. <laughs> yeah like i totally wouldn't be surprised um if, if this film you know had a bit of issue as well with, with getting through because obviously at that point you know without fully committing to war in a way you kind of are by putting out films that are you know, inverted commas propaganda or you know are mm -hmm. sort of seen to make maybe light of the opposition technically you are kind of taking a stance so i had at one time i want i can kind of see why but that's it just in, in hindsight like we have the benefit of hindsight it just sounds so stupid that they like would... oh you were against hitler what a shot <laughs> yeah exactly you know <laughs> like it's it, it, it's just one of those things where in hindsight it's obviously the stupidest thing ever but maybe i can kind of get it if i put myself in in their shoes right now yeah, I guess the U.S., I mean, they were kind of getting out of that isolationist, obviously, after World War One, they had kind yeah. of stopped that whole idea. But, I mean, I guess there was probably still that sentiment around, like, oh, we don't need to get involved, which is hilarious to think about now, but that was at yeah. least the thought at one time. Yeah. Um, Zach, I'm going to make a defense of this film to where, my, the, at the end of this, I want it to be in your top ten. Okay, well, okay. That's my goal with this, Okay. Uh, and, I, and I won't go too long, although I could talk about this one for another hour. <laughs> there's, there's two main things I want to kind of highlight. And if you do get a chance to see it again, like just kind of see it through this lens, I guess. And I think, uh, see if it helps. Shop Around the Corner had come out like a few years before and was this massive hit for Lubitsch, right? It, you know, Shop Around the Corner was remade into uh, You've Got Mail, right? 
Uh, and it's just like this sweet love story. Some people say that Lubitsch kind of like set the template for modern romantic comedy. If that's true, Shop Around the Corner is a great example of that, right? And uh, what he did was so clever in the opening was as he showed Poland getting invaded, he made it look like the set of Shop Around the Corner. So it was a, this was an intentional decision by Lubitsch to draw the audience immediately into this film that they loved and show those characters and those stores getting invaded not a random city, a random country, but like this thing that you loved is getting invaded. And apparently people at the time had seen Shop Around the Corner so much that like a lot of people picked up on that and were immediately like sucked into this story. So that's one. Um, two, this is a slight, that was a more just kind of a fun thing. This is gonna sound slightly more academic, but I'm just captivated like by this idea. By having Jack Benny yawn Heil Hitler, by making the Yahtzees, so, so the commentary spends a lot of time on this, and I did a little bit extra reading afterwards because I was so fascinated by this idea. There's a few filmmakers that instead of dehumanizing the enemy and making them this evil empire that needs to be destroyed and sort of taking away their humanity in order so that they can be targeted to be destroyed, there's a few filmmakers that actually humanized the enemy, made them very human, and in that, in discovering their humanity and their, uh, the fact that they were also driven by lust, as, as Lubitsch put into a lot of his characters, or you know, driven by short-term thinking, they were kind of idiots, just by making them very human, you, it did two things kind of simultaneously. So the first thing it did, which it, it was kind of subconsciously make the violence in the film more terrifying, because you see the people that were in control and you don't see them as these megalomaniac leaders that were perfect and had control over everything. You saw them as broken sort of normal people. And in that it made the, the violence like a little bit more intense because you realize that it, this could be anybody who buys into this like poisonous ideology. And then the second thing it does is that it makes them seem defeatable and it makes it possible for a troop of filmmakers to go and knock out this enemy that the rest of the world kind of saw as this like great evil. And I think Lubitsch's opinion was that they're not a great evil. They're a bunch of idiots that have a poisonous ideology and together they're doing something that's quite powerful, but they can be broken because they're human. Um, and that sort of structure and, and that the way that he kind of put that all together really hadn't been done and especially had never been done in a comedy. Uh, and so that's another reason why I love it so much other than the jokes is that it has like these layers to it. And when the film does get serious, you actually feel sad uh, and you actually feel the pain of like some of the shots of like a completely broken cityscape uh, and, and some of these things that happen as they start to bomb and invade. Uh, it, you, you, you're invested like in the scenes and the characters a little bit more. And then also you, you see a path for them to succeed. So I'll kind of stop there, but th that's some of the reasons uh, why I just like I guess I'm obsessed with this film a little. Well, it's it's fascinating to hear like that description because the things that you were talking about, you know, obviously this came out in '42, but it seems like, and like I said, I mean, I I haven't delved deep into it to know this. I might just yeah. you know just talking to talk, but it, it seems like almost like methods that were used even for not later World War II movies, like when you were describing the first part of you know saying this is a romantic comedy and those type of stories are tore apart by the war, that's a lot of what was used in Life is Beautiful, where the first 
I don't know, yeah. 45 minutes to an hour is just a love story. I mean, that's the whole thing. It's a, it's almost a romantic comedy. And as Norm Macdonald would say, and then the Germans came. I mean, that's just, <laughs> that's how, that, that really was reality. And I think it's fascinating to feel like while I may be one of those people who didn't quite get it, it does bring a really interesting perspective that it seems like he kind of set this path that a lot of, World War II directors would well not not necessarily but people who made World War II films would go mm -hmm. on to use as well. Yeah. Cool. Well, next time you see it, keep that in mind. And yeah, anybody... yeah, I definitely will. I, I it, you know, I, I don't want to come off like I didn't like the film because I did think it was interesting. I just felt like I was missing like, almost a context. Like historically, I know a lot of the stuff going on, but it's almost like part of the joke I didn't get, and I feel like you cleared up a a decent amount of that which i appreciate um so i'll definitely like check it out again at some point and just with that in mind okay any other interesting tidbits on the film chris even any sort of little anecdotes or anything like that that we might find interesting or our listeners might find interesting yeah actually there's one so let me see if i can find this really quickly so this cinematographer was rudolph matei do y'all know that name um, let me see it written down because so he had just right. done Hitch, uh, Hitchcock's right um, foreign correspondent. Oh, I love that film. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you scroll through the filmography of Rudolph, oh Mate, my god, he did Passion of Joan of Arc. Yeah, and he did Vampire. Yeah, oh, long no, career. It, it keeps going. It keeps yeah. going. This dude is legit. Yeah, yeah. So this guy was a favorite of basically everybody who wanted to make a good movie. <laughs> Um, I'm just looking through the list. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, but he also did that Hamilton woman, which was lumped into the same pro-British propaganda. I remember the pro-British propaganda guy with Manhunt also lumped in that Hamilton woman. And I've seen that Hamilton woman. That is definitely pro-British propaganda. <laughs> it's not a World War II film or anything. It's it's um it's all around the Napoleonic Wars, but Jesus, that is just pure British blowing smoke up their ass film. Um, sorry, but yeah, this guy is is legit, obviously. Well, so that's the thing. It just just it's not really a huge point, but just to say that you know, even in the choices he made surrounding himself with the people who who made the production design, who made who did the cinematography, uh, Lubitsch was known for having uh, basically everything he did uh, was planned out. He was a meticulous designer, uh, as well as a writer and director. So, like, there was no accidents anywhere in the film. So he needed people that could carry his vision. And it was like a big vision in, in uh, throughout his, his life, no matter what type of film he was making. And as this was a big vision, he really needed powerful kind of shadow play, like at times in the way that like lighting and angles would, were, were done. So it's nothing dramatic. Like uh, we talk about Stanley Cortez a lot, right? As being the best sort of at angles and shadows. Right? Yeah, like it's nothing like that, but it was done. It was shot in a particular way that really drew out um, where like the staging was very important and like the way that, you know, the pathos was very important in certain scenes to feel sad and some of those kind of things. So um, he, he was just an interesting, I, I don't know. Anyways, I, I recommend if, if, even if you're not the type to listen to commentaries uh, a lot, I, it's a little dry, honestly, the person who, who spoke is not very dynamic, but the, <laughs> what they do talk about in the film and, and the history surrounding it and the way that Lubitsch made movies and, sort of the, the free reign he had at this point to kind of make whatever he wanted to make. Uh, people just trusted him at this point uh, after so many hits back to back. 
so it 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 all kind of came together really well and this movie was financially successful um and it saved this this producer um turned him around as well which is funny to say about somebody who's the head of a studio but it you know it kind of put him back on track as well so this film was by all accounts a success even though some critics didn't get it and it was kind of shelved for a little while uh outside of uh, theatrical run until people rediscovered it and now it's now it's gaining steam again which is good I just want to note that uh, he also was the cinematographer for my favorite Wells movie, which is uh, Lady of Shanghai. Yeah, I just saw it at the end, unsent, uncredited for some reason. But uh... well, he he also did it with because uh, it was three cinematographers. Because it also was Charles oh. Lawton Jr., who um, you know did like Three Ten to Yuma, and uh, that's probably the most famous I could think. Char- of. Charles Lawton Jr. Did you say yeah, that? That was yeah. my question too. Yeah, expound on as that, in <laughs> as in like the son of Charles Lawton, director of Night of the Hunter. Uh, I was actually curious about that too, um, but that will it, blow my freaking mind if it's true. <laughs> he was born in 1904, but it has like nothing about him. Okay, I would assume if he was, then it. Would, I mean, I feel like that'd be the first thing you'd note. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'm sure they would say so. <laughs> um, so I is found out who his spouse is. Yeah, they would definitely have to name that, right? Is it is it spelled the same way? Uh, L A W T O N. No, no. Okay, stop. Then we don't have to worry about it. Um, but oh yeah, you're right. Oh, and I guess the last thing I wanted to ask about this movie. Um, has mm-hmm. anyone seen the Mel Brooks movie? Because I know <laughs> I noticed he did one. I didn't realize it was remade until I went to go pull up the IMDb page to do my intro, and I saw there was like another one. So yeah, it, it, it's line. Song. It's essentially a line for line remake. The only problem is that. Mel Brooks is not great at the heavier side of drama, right? right? Which not that this film has, not that this film's a drama or, but uh, a thriller or anything like that, but he does carry the, I think the serious moments with weight mm-hmm. and Brooks does not do that. So it kind of loses half of the import, the way that the film works and it's just jokes. And it kind of makes it a little bit less powerful. I think, I, don't, I think that's why people don't talk about it as much. Um, and also Mel Brooks is no Jack Benny. I mean, I, Producers is one of my favorite movies. I love Mel Brooks, but they have a different energy, right? That's, um, yeah. So I'm, I want to introduce our next uh, our guest. We're very fortunate to have, you know, Mike uh, join us from Grindhouse Video. But I also want to say quickly, you know, there's, we, we've been so lucky to do several of these interviews and you never quite know what you're going to get um, as far as the personalities behind these brands that we love. And, and when I reached out to Mike, who's so, so accommodating and so nice and so easy to, to actually schedule this with. And despite the fact that he's moving his entire inventory, he has 2,200 square feet of store and three storage units that have like tens of thousands of titles that he's never even opened up before he's gotten sales and things. And he's moving to a 4,000 square foot store in Tennessee, which you'll hear about here in a minute. But the fact that he took time to actually talk to us in the middle of all this, which is great. But the thing that, that really jumped out to me in this interview that I just want to highlight, you know, kind of looking back on it is like, it, he, he's just the kind of guy that it, it, you just want to succeed. <laughs> like this guy, he, he literally, I mean, you'll hear the whole story of how Grindhouse came to be. I don't want to spoil it, but it's so great. And it's so sincere. And the fact that in the 2021, there's a guy who's moving from a 2,200 square foot video store to a 4,000 square foot video store and is already concerned he might be running out of space. 
is just amazing. Like this guy has a true story uh, of, of entrepreneurship and what's best in business. And I love that he's doing it in video collecting. He's so supportive of the community. He talks openly and supportive about his direct competition. He doesn't care. He just wants people to watch movies, get excited about movies and, and buy from him where they can. <laughs> and uh, I've certainly given Mike a lot of business at, at Grindhouse Video over the years. So I was excited to talk to him and uh, yeah, here we go. In Tampa. And then you are, um, is it October 1st? You're hoping to open up or is that the, is that when you're, that's, oh wait, that's this week. That can't be right. Yeah. When that's, you- that's when I'm going to be uh, kind of taking most like basically everything in stock off of the website and just leaving up pre-orders and then november 1st will basically be a relaunch of the website in full got you got you well everything you just mentioned has uh so much work behind the scenes (laughs) oh god people have no idea how much stuff i have to do still (laughs) so crazy yeah so i really appreciate you making time for us um we, um, I found actually found out about you through Reddit. Are you active there? Um, you know what? I am not active. I see Reddit. Yeah. Um, I don't quite understand Reddit. I am not <clears throat> someone that likes stuff like that. Like I, I'm, I, if I didn't have the store, I wouldn't be on social media or anything. Um, so it's not my thing, but, yeah. uh, some, a couple years ago, uh, Tampa paper did a story on me because he found out about the store through Reddit. Um, I think almost every interview I've done for a podcast, they found out about, found out about the store on Reddit. And so finally <laughs> after you like, Oh, I'm on Reddit. I'm like, okay, I need to check Reddit out. And I, I don't understand it. I don't know. It's like, it, 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 I mean, it looks like Facebook to me, but without friends, I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm too old for this shit, man. I, I don't understand uh, this shit. Well, for, for the purpose of today, uh, you, you won't need to. And I can, I'm happy to be your proxy on there. I can tell you that there's a community on. So the big thing about Reddit is not just joining the general like Reddit but finding these individual little sub communities, they call them subreddits, where people hang out that have a particular set of interests, right? So yeah, I, I've been seeing the uh, boutique blue. Yeah, ring. that's right. I think that's the one that I I was, I, I see I I see things about it. Yeah, every once in a while. Right. So on the on that sub, what happens is people like me is. I guess about two years ago, I was in the same spot you're in now where you're like, this doesn't make any sense to me, but I stumbled across this, across this boutique Blu-ray and I was happy to find it because uh, I've been collecting DVDs since 2000, let's just say 2001. So I was there for that first wave of kind of like the heyday where, you know, limited editions were a hundred thousand for evil dead or something like that. Oh yeah. Those tins that they did for anchor Bay are like, limited to 150,000 copies and like, oh my god I need it now before it sells out exactly um and now you know vinegar syndrome and, and arrow and all that are putting out like 1500 and 2000 but um uh but uh yeah so I was I was collecting actually it's funny you mentioned that I'm, on Instagram I'm, I'm kind of learning about social a little bit as well I opened up an Instagram account about a month ago and I just posted I'm complete on those anchor bay tins there, there weren't many of them, but I will say that um, they were pretty damn cool. 
Yeah. Especially back in the day, like there were there weren't steel books. Um that was kind of the steel book of the day was the tins. Yeah. Uh but uh the best one is the wicker man because it's actually made out of like a light wood. Yeah, like up some kind like, of a balsa wood or something. Burned in like all the artworks burned in. Like it's pretty amazing. It's good stuff. Yeah, I, I love those things. And uh I lived in Dallas at the time and there's a couple of video stores there that carried all that stuff. So it was easy to find and and uh, and I, I was uh, free to freely free with my purchases. But, um, you know, now I got I took a break because of just work and family and stuff. And about 2019, I got back into collecting and I stopped about 2010. So it was before the majority of these boutique Blu-ray uh, kind of labels were even that big. Some of them had started, uh, you know, Blue Underground was still around in the DVD days. I think Severin started like mid 2000s. But like a lot of them are brand new. Like I didn't know about Arrow. I didn't know about Vinegar. I didn't know about, you know, whatever. Most, most of the ones that are, are big now. And so Boutique Blu-ray is a nice place to go on there. But the whole, the whole reason for this kind of uh, detour is when people talk about where to go to buy these, these kind of uh, labels, your name is one of the two or three that always comes up. So you have, you have a good representation and a loyal following there. That was my main point. It, it's nice. Cause like, you know, last seven years I've worked my ass off um, to not just, well, to begin just to keep the store open. Um, but then after a few years, um, not having necessarily to worry about that part. Yeah. But, um, you know, just getting into now, uh, let's take it on to the next level and get more stock in and carry more titles and then you know, uh, now I'm seven years in and I'm getting, you know, exclusives from Arrow and, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, that video you shot, I forget if it was Twitter or whatever, but it, it, I found or YouTube, I, I'm sorry that I, I, I think it was t- Twitter, but anyways, that video you shot where you had one of the trucks back in and dump off the Arrow haul and your entire store was just flooded with like yeah. inventory. That was like, I just forwarded that to probably 20 people. That was the craziest thing. It was, that sale was ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and it's the reason why I, I am a part of getting those Arrow exclusives now. Um, I have been told by them and my distributor that uh, I outsell, that sale outsold everybody else's sale, including like Barnes and Noble, Diabolic, all of them. Um, I mean, my goal, because like I did a sale uh, the year before, I think it was like, maybe it was even early that year. Yeah. I think it was the second sale I had done with them that year. Yeah. Um, but my, sale, my, my units sold were, I think it was like 6,800 units, which is good. Like it's a good, it's a good number. Yeah. So, you know, for this, you know, you always want to, your goal is to hit more units. Yeah. Uh, each sale. And so I was like, you know what? I really think that we can hit 10,000 units. Um, We did that in like day three (laughs) and we ended up doing 22,000 units plus. That's, that's, that's amazing and terrible. (laughs) Oh my God. Like it was (laughs) utter nightmare for almost a month and a half of just shipping. Um, Like I had every order that I, I got in for to fill the orders that were placed um, was two pallets at least. And it was, and my, my store is not big. Like I've needed a new physical store for at least two to three years. 
Okay. And, you know, so there's not a whole lot of room to put things. And so, yeah, I made that video just like, okay, this is the reality of what it looks like right now in my life. Like, this is not fun. Uh, This is a lot of work. Please be patient. You know, Um, were were people patient after that video? Oh, no. (laughs) No. Uh, And that's the thing. Like, what I've learned is, I, I will say this, though. I would say 75% of the orders that I got during that sale were first-time customers. Mm. Um, and Arrow's kind of like the big guy in the company and the group of boutique labels. Mm-hmm. Um, just because they've had such a good reputation in the UK than when they moved to the US, you know, everybody consider considers them the criterion of cult films, you know. Mm-hmm. They do they and they do good work. They put out some really solid product. Um, but what that leads to is a lot like people will buy Arrow films that have never heard of Vinegar Syndrome or Synapse or Severin. Um, and those people buy a lot on Amazon mm-hmm. and they don't, I don't think they understand the concept of a small business run by one person doing a sale with Arrow. Um, and just to, in an environment where production delays, shipping delays, um, and there's a global pandemic, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, we were dead in the middle of the pandemic. <laughs> right, right. Um, it, I mean, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a blessing and a curse, I guess, so to speak, because you, you get, you, you do get new eyeballs, which is always what you want, right? Which is at least it, it's the goal of doing those sales. It's not because they're fun, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so, so speaking of that, you okay? I. I I, I know a little bit about, but I'd love to hear your context. So you started in a flea market. Yes. And was it, was it DVDs or what were you selling in the flea market? So um, back in 2013, I think it was, uh-huh. um, I moved, I, I lived in Knoxville for a year. Um, the money was terrible. I was working in the restaurant industry okay. um, and my mom wasn't doing great. So I moved back to Tampa. Um, I got my job back at the restaurant that I was working at for quite a while. Um, but while I was gone, the owner sold it to a new guy and he had no clue how to run a restaurant. And I was very unhappy from day one, okay. uh, but I, I, I was working with the same people that I had worked with before. So, you know, we were kind of family, we were, we were all friends. And so I was there helping as much as I could to get through this dumbass that opened the, that bought the restaurant <laughs> okay. to get everybody through it all. And one weekend um, I helped out one of the managers by coming in and he started with a brand new menu on top of the menu that we did already mm-hmm. and a brand new computer system on the same weekend. Nice. With zero training. Uh, he never made the food for us from the new menu. Um, it was a Mediterranean food menu and we were an Italian restaurant. Um, so he never made any of it. He didn't, he didn't even tell us how to pronounce half of it. And I told him flat out, I'm like, I'm not selling your menu. So when people would ask, you know, about anything on the menu, I'd be like, hold on. And I'd go and get him and have him explain it. I Mm -hmm. hated this guy, Mm -hmm. but I loved the crew. So, uh, one weekend, uh, he completely fucked me over. Uh, the next night I was serving and it's Saturday. We've got to wait at the door. I've got, I'm running like seven tables and I, this whole 
system with the, the computer system uh, and the new menu was backing everybody up. And he, he finally was like, he kept asking me, hey, did you get drinks for this table? I'm like, no, because I've got nine other tables to worry about. Um, and so finally, he's like, you know what? If you can't keep up, maybe you shouldn't be here. And I'm like, that's a great fucking idea. And I started screaming in the kitchen. Yeah. And the kitchen is like literally a door away from <laughs> the dining room. Yeah. Right. We are completely full. And I start screaming at him, cussing him out. I walked out, handed in my money, and walked out the door. Um, now, that being said, I had saved up money because uh, I was living with my mom, helping her out. She was sick. So, the, and it, it all boils down to a perfect storm to create Grindhouse Video. Okay. Um, so, I'm running out of the money I saved up. And so, I... I was taking care of my mom so much. Uh, she, she had cancer at the time and, you know, I'm taking her to doctor's appointments almost on a daily basis, like oh. hospital visits. Like it was bad. Um, she could barely walk. So I was making all the, all the meals. Like I was doing a lot. So getting a regular job wouldn't work. And I'm like, you know what? I've got all these movies. I, I don't really do anything with them. Um, you know, I need money. I'm just going to go set up the flea market. Just real quick, double click on that. So you said I have all these movies. Have you? So were you always a collector? Oh, I've I've always been a collector. Uh, before movies, it was uh, music. Um, at one point, I had a ten thousand plus CD collection. Awesome. Okay. Um, yeah. So you have the bug. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like I'm collecting something at all times. Yeah. Um. So you know, I had a few hundred movies. Uh, it was all DVD. I hadn't switched to Blu-ray or anything. Like I wasn't hardcore into it. But I would go to thrift stores and, and pawn shops and buy whatever movie I, you know, I'm like, oh, I like that movie. It's only, it's only a dollar. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so I, I set up at the flea market. It was actually a lot of fun just sitting around talking about movies with people. And I actually made some money. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the next m- nine months, every weekend I was there. Um, it just kind of became what I did. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so, you know, I, during the week, um, I would go on Craigslist every day and hunt down collections and go buy. I drive all over Tampa buying collections and going to pawn shops. Um, yeah. And, you know, I bought a DVD buffer so I could make them nicer so I could sell them for more. Uh-huh. I had regulars, uh, people that didn't like buy stuff online would be like, Hey, do you have this movie? And I'd sit on my phone and I'd be like, no, but oh, it's only 10 bucks on Amazon uh, for $15. I can have it next week. And they're like, Uh, Oh, that's awesome. And so they'd come in the next week and I'd hand them their, their DVD that I bought. I made, just made five bucks. I'm like, this is awesome. This is great. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Um, And a friend of mine uh, who actually owns the comic book store next door to me, uh, nerd out comics. uh, He, he called me up. He's like, Hey, you got to come down here. I'm like, all right. So I went over to his friend's shop and it was a tiny little room. And uh, he's like, the place next door is opening up. We're moving the comic book store, which is where my initial store was. It, it was uh, it was the comic book store is moving next door. And then my friend was t- taking the back half to open a record store. And he wanted me to move and start a video store in that little little room. So um, I was like, I, I did the math. 
and it was like 350 a month. It was a 12 by 12 box, 244 square feet, uh, one window, no bathroom, uh, and, a, and an air conditioning wall unit. Like literally it was nothing. And uh, I did the math and I'm like, it's like $50 cheaper than setting up at the flea market every week. I'm like, and I can be open seven days a week and charge more. Uh huh. I'm like, okay, I'll try it. Um, and so I just literally just opened up a store. Like I, I had movies from uh, the, the flea market and I, anything I'd had in my personal collection, I put out in stock. Um, you know, I was shopping in a lot of thrift stores to find VHS tapes at the time. So I put all the VHS in there and I had nothing. I, some friends donated some shelves for me to put stuff on. Uh, we built all the bins. Um, so, you know, my mom gave me a thousand bucks to help out. And that's what Grindhouse Video was born out of. Um, it, I can't believe I'm still doing this, to be honest. Because um, normally that situation, you know, People ask me, you know, what, what does it take to open a, a store? I'm like, I don't know. You got a half a million. Yeah. Um, right. Right. Like that's literally what you would need to get started for the most part and be any, in any, any way competitive. Um, you know, so it was in living with my mom and taking care of her uh, freed me up to be able to do it. Um, you know, I, I wasn't open a lot. Uh, during that time, just, you know, taking my mom to chemo and stuff like yeah. that. Um, but I was there as many days as I possibly could. And, uh, you know, the first year was every month. All right. Well, I guess I'm not going to be open next month because I can't pay rent. Granted, 350 bucks. Um, and then somebody would come in and spend like 250 and I'd, I'd be like, all right, I'm open another month. <laughs> like li literally, that's how it was for the first year. Yep. Yes. Um, yep. And then something happened, and like I, at this point, I wasn't online. It was just a, a physical store, and something happened, and people just started coming in, and all of a sudden, I've got more product than I have room for, because people kept trading stuff in, and it just kind of grew out of control. Um, you know, then I moved to a thousand square feet, and then the place next door opened up, so I took that. So now I'm, you know, two thousand square feet. And uh, now I'm moving everything to Knoxville and it's 4,400 square feet. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's been a wild, wild ride. If, if there was a story that went behind a physical store that has a strong online presence that specializes in horror and cult films, I feel like that's the perfect story <laughs> to support that what, what Grindhouse Video has become. Yeah, I mean, I've always been the guy, even as a teenager, that just did shit. I'd, I'd have no idea what how to do it, but i just do it. Um, you know, when I was 16, I booked my first concert. Um, <laughs> I brought in uh, this band from Fort Lauderdale. I didn't have any opening bands, so I started a band to open for them um, and did it at my church's youth group uh, building. And, you know, there was 20 people there, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is crazy. Yeah, um, but I just, I just, I was just tired of driving two hours to go to a show. I'm like, I already know these people. I so I, you know, I've seen all these bands. I'll just do it myself. And you know, I spent ten years booking concerts. Um, 
you know, it was all, it was all Christian shit. You know, that was what I was into at the time. What, um, what, what year is that? Was that like nineties? This was uh, just after high school. So like 95 ish. Yeah, That was like uh, the, kind of the dream, like late nineties is when the whole Christian scene really kind of exploded. Right. Yep. Yep. I mean, I ended up doing shows with like MXPX. Um, yeah. Um, POD did it. <laughs> I booked POD. That's funny. Uh, like two years before they blew up. Um, I was really into punk in high school. I was in high school from 96 to 2000. I was really into punk. And of course, like MXPX was one that came up a lot. There's another band. I don't know if you remember them. If you're into that scene, you might know them called Slick Shoes. Yep. No Slick Shoes. Yep. The guy, the guitarist there could shred. Um, and uh, there was, anyways, I, uh, if, I, if with more time, I could remember there was a handful of them, but um, they, they always were kind of around the punk scene anyways. It, it kind of blended together at some point. I mean, when I, when I say I had a CD collection of 10,000, it was all Christian music. Oh, okay. 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 That's awesome. Like, it, so I was very into that scene. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And now you're selling Serbian film. <laughs> and, and now I sell porn. You know. Yeah. My, my first job, my first real job out of high school, uh, besides the car wash I worked at, uh, was a music buyer for a Christian bookstore. And that's when Tooth and Nail started. Yep. I remember that. So, uh, you know, Starflyer 59 and, you know, Joy Electric and all those early tooth and nail bands came out. And I was just like, this is amazing. And so people that did not listen to Christian music had never, you know, became Christian. You know, they wanted, I had bunch, my, my best friend uh, who owns the Nerd Out Comics next to me. We've known each other since back in the 90s. We first met because he came to my Christian bookstore. He's been atheist since he was I, you know, born like he's never Christian. He came in there because Starflyer 59 and all these other tooth and nail bands. He's like, I don't care what they talk about. They're just really good. Good music. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, right. So yeah, it, it was, uh, God, that was a wild time back then. Like just because I, I had a really good relationship with tooth and nail. Um, I booked a lot of tooth, old tooth and nail bands. And so it was a, it was a fun time. Not, not, not to the nail, but uh, I remember uh, Fat Mike from, from Fat Records. Um, yeah. He talked about in the 90s how he would, like, I forget exactly what he said. Something like he would take a shit and he would sell 100,000 copies or something like that. Like, he yeah. said, like, the punk scene was so big. Like, it was anything, anything that came out from Fat Records would instantly sell, like, basically go gold, you know. Or, yeah. like, and it was just now like, you know, they basically survive on kind of playing shows and, and doing what they can with stuff, Spotify and stuff. But yeah, anyways, that's, there's, there's a whole other conversation here about music. Cause I, that was all my scene growing up as well. That's cool. That's a cool uh, point of connection there. So but it also, it also goes back into the, the video scene is, you know, back in the nineties, you know, I, I'm good friends with uh, Stephen Byro from Unearthed and, you know, he's talking about the heyday when, you know, the Guinea pig box set, he sold a hundred thousand units and to Best Buy, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, like he, he's like, yeah, we, you know, we made, you know, 50,000 of the box set and then like five or 10,000 of each one of them singly. And we sold out of all of those, like, you know, it was a heyday for if you put something out, it will sell. Yeah. Like, and, you know, you can pay your bills and, you know, full retail was a thing back then because there was no online. Um you know, so it, the the business has definitely changed since then. 
So I feel like, uh, I meant to ask this a little bit later, but maybe it's natural now. I feel like though, just having been involved uh, as, a, as somebody who's, a, I guess, a consumer, uh, having been involved in that first, you know, kind of heyday, and then seeing it dip to where it was almost like borderline for a few years, it was kind of hard to find stuff unless it was secondhand. I mean, there was always Amazon, but like, and, you know, Target and Best Buy and those kind of things. But like, in terms of the boutique stuff, it was just a, a dead period, I feel like. And then I feel like now, like I've seen, so even Vinegar Syndrome, you know, they have this archive line that they put out where the, where the, yeah. the discs slide out of the bottom. So I've seen them go from a thousand copies to now the latest one that came out, I think they're up to spine 16, that has 5,000 copies. So it feels like to me, at least buying these things, that there is a, a little bit of that spirit of kind of like excitement around these products again. Yeah, Vinegar Syndrome definitely did a really good job of getting a fan base of the label. Um, I think they probably have one of the most rabid fan bases of a label that there is right mm -hmm. now. Um, but, I mean, they started when I did. Like, you know, when I first met them at a con convention, um, you know, they were basically had a small table and only had like 10 titles like so you know i kind of started with when they did and we so we both kind of grown together yeah um but you know they they took a step into making some really good packaging um and you know i think that because you got to do something to set your, yourself apart you know um unless you're scream factory where you're kind of a major label not necessarily a boutique label like right. you're in that middle part Right. Um, unless you're doing stuff like them where, you know, you're you're getting huge boobies uh, that are going to guaranteed sell 20, 30,000 units over the term of the license. Yeah. Um, you know, you've really got to fight to get noticed. Um, and they did a really good job at that. But even if, you know, between and sorry, not even just to focus on them so much, but I mean, between them and what Arrow and you mentioned Synapse, like, you know, Synapse has put out a couple of steel books that I feel like are selling out. Like, it, it just feels to me like, again, I guess my, my vantage point is on um, Reddit. Um, but, you know, like people talk about, hey, there's a sale right now on this thing. And then if you, if you wait 24 hours, like more often than not, that thing is gone. <laughs> or, it, you know, like, it just feels like there's a little bit of a buzz around physical media, I guess. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, like I, most people, when I tell them I sell VHS are just like, really? Why? <laughs> uh, well, because I sell more VHS than I do DVDs uh, in the use section when I'm, you know, when the store was open, I was selling, you know, even a, a small period of the store's history where I wasn't, you know, it was maybe a thousand square feet. Uh, you know, I was selling two to $3,000 a week and just VHS tapes. That's crazy. You know, and not like the cr crazy stuff. Like, you know, people would come in and drop 50 bucks on dollar tapes. So, <laughs> you know, it, there, there's a resurgence of people getting back into it because, and, and in my opinion, you know, I'm saying because, but it's my opinion for, you know, from what I, what I see and what I read about you know, streaming was the big thing, you know, maybe what, five, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of new and Netflix was taken over. And now mm -hmm. there's so many different streaming sites mm -hmm. and it's still such a small percentage of the movies that are out there. Yeah. 
Um, and they're spending a hundred dollars a month. You know, it's cut the cable, you know, cut the cord, get rid of cable. So you could spend exact same amount on all these different streaming services and not have it all in the same place. Uh, and then, you know, you still don't have even a close to every close to everything that, you know, uh, is available. Um, so I think after, you know, that initial boost of, you know, streaming, 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 now people that are, they've seen it all on streaming. And, you know, now they're looking for shit that they have never heard of. Uh, they remember from back in the 90s when they went to their local video store, video rental store. Yeah. You know, oh, I remember this box art, you know, and Vinegar Syndrome or Arrows putting it out or whatever. Um, so, I, and I think, I think that is kind of, now that streaming is kind of mainstream, now people are going, yeah, but they don't have, you know, uh, Buried Alive or The Burning or, you know, whatever movie on streaming. Yep. But I really want to watch it. But if I had it, I could watch it anytime. Yeah. And I don't have to worry about the internet being up or not, you know? Yep. So I, I think, I think it's, it's eventually going to, going to peter out. You know, I know that, um, but it, we're in a really good time for, for collecting. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess eventually is, is a, is a long, is a big term, but I don't know. Like I, you know, we, I feel like every generation has this thing where they, it's hard to beat something tactile. Right. So you see with vinyl coming back that people talk about, they like the grain of the sound of the music, right? Like nothing beats the sound of like, you know, uh, Johnny Cash on vinyl or something like that. Right. right. And then, and then like I, I, in the same way, like there's this discussion. So we've been fortunate enough to talk to some different film restoration specialists on the podcast. And like, one of the things they say is that there's this balance you strike when you're converting something into 4k where you actually don't want to lose the grain of a movie that was filmed in the eighties. Um, or something that was shot on VHS, you don't want to take away that grain because that's actually part of the film experience, right? And so I think, like, I don't know, I just feel like maybe that's why VHS is coming back in a way, like, there, you know, there, there's something that just kind of, people want that, like, tactile experience, I think. Uh, and, and I don't know if that will ever fully go away. It might. Well, like, uh, this was back when I was still in the very, the first location, like, in the very, really small store. Um, I got a phone call uh, asking if they could use my store for a, a shoot. They lost their location. And, uh, you know, the guy's like explaining the movie. It's a documentary and everything um, about Mike Diana. And I had never heard of Mike Diana, but he mentioned that Frank Hennenlotter was directing it. And I'm like, okay, um, is Frank going to be there? He's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, you can do whatever the fuck you want in my store. <laughs> <laughs> seriously like as long as i get to be there and like meet frank hennelotter you can do anything yeah. i don't care that's the payment right uh, so you know i showed up they they walk in you know it's like a little three-man crew with with mike and and frank and they were shooting uh boiled angel the documentary on mike diana and did an interview in the store and so while the, the guys are setting everything up frank's shopping frank's just walking around the store you know going through the bins and He's like, and, and it was the, the one thing I remember him saying, he's flipping through the bins and he looks at me, he's like, I, he was holding up the beyond from uh, Grindhouse releasing. And uh -huh. he's like, I don't own this because I was like, eh, 
whatever. I've seen it. But now that I'm holding it in my hand, I have to buy it. Exactly. Like he's because he is a huge collection. Well, he got he's real. He's one of the uh, kind of founders and, and big instigators for Agfa, right? Um, that I don't know. Anyways, okay. I don't know that story, but I'm sure because he's worked with something weird for so long. I'm sure he was a part of it in some way. Okay, yeah, um, that's, that's probably the connection. But anyways, yeah, okay. Yeah, so you know, like when you know, there's plenty of places to buy stuff online, but what really set sets my store apart is the physical aspect of it, um, which is very hard to um, to do like logistically run a physical store and a website, especially at the size it is now. Yeah. Um, but it's a lot of work. So let's talk about that. Cause you're, you're moving. So you're moving from 2000 to 4,400 square feet. You're going to be in Tennessee, which is, is surprisingly, and I'm, I'm sure you know this, but a lot of people in that region, let's just say kind of the Midwest to, to that part of the Appalachians, there's actually a lot of collectors in that area. Um, um I don't, I didn't know that. Um, you know, I guess I could look and see how many customers I have from Tennessee and the surrounding States. But the reason why I'm moving to Tennessee is because my daughter lives there. Oh, and cool. so she's going to be more of a part of the business. Like, you know, I'm basically teaching her everything I know to hand her the keys one day. Um, so that was the reason for Knoxville specifically. Um, but it's, uh, it, I'm sorry if you heard kids screaming outside i people <laughs> are I, I can barely i don't know if, i don't know if you can hear that or not um, just barely not it's really. not me all right <laughs> they are not the ones in my basement you're watching uh, children of the corn and the, 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 trust me the ones in my basement you can't hear them um <laughs> but uh I, oh yeah uh so i it also like even when i had the the first 2000 or 244 square foot place I had people from all over the world coming there, like changing their plans on vacations to go to Tampa instead of Orlando. Just Or uh, I had one couple from Australia that went to Disney, found out about the store, canceled one of their days at Disney, rented a car and drove to Tampa. That's amazing. Like, so I'm like, okay, Florida is great but it's also very hard to get to from anywhere other than Florida. Mm. Um, it's a long drive. You got to, or you got to fly. And, you know, Tennessee is a little bit more central on the East coast. Mm-hmm. So I really think that once the physical store reopens, that will be a, a better destination store. Well, I was definitely planning on coming to Tampa, so I don't, I don't mind shifting my plans to Knoxville. What, what is Grindhouse going to be when it grows up? Cause you've got, so 4,400 square feet is, I mean, that's, I mean, not that 2000 is small, but I mean, it's small. I mean, but you're moving in. That's a real store. Like, yeah. that's like a, that's like a retail space, right? Not that's, that's big. So, so what is Grindhouse going to be next? Like, what, what do you have plans uh, to, to grow into that space? Or are you, are you already there and you just needed more space to begin with? I actually might already be there. Okay. Okay. It's like, I, I don't know because I've never had all of my stock out um mm. I mean, i've got two storage units that are completely full of product wow um one of them has a six seven thousand piece vhs collection that i've never touched that i bought like three years ago um yeah i i don't know if it's i don't even know if it's big enough for what i actually physically have that i'm moving um 
you know, because I've got the 2,000 square feet that is basically has been set up for, you know, years. Um, but I've got thousands and thousands and thousands of units that have never been priced. Never, I've never looked at, um, you know, I was going through the, those DVD, used DVD boxes. And I'm like, when did I get that? I didn't know I had that. Um, so, yeah, it, there's a lot. Uh, so once the physical store reopens, uh, I think we'll still have room to grow, um, but we'll be in a better space to manage it a little bit better. Um, like basically every time that I've expanded, I've been able to put more stuff out and sales have skyrocketed on, in the physical store. So it's like the more I have out, the more money comes in. And that just means more trade-ins come in, which means more product to put out. Um, you know, so eventually I will outgrow the 4,400 square feet. Um, but I, I don't want to move again, uh, ever. So I'm probably going to be in that location until the store goes under or they burn the building down. Um, because moving is a bitch, um, and expensive. Yeah. Um, so more than likely I would end up opening a second store or third store or fourth store, uh, throughout the years. You know, and, and I'm in the future, I've got plans on, you know, working with other labels to do uh, some other stuff. Um, I'm going to be doing more merchandising. So there will be very soon like Greenhouse Video t-shirts and hats and koozies and all kinds of shit. Great. Um, I'm looking into even getting, possibly looking into getting uh, merchandising rights to do stuff like that for, for films. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, I've got a I've got a business idea that I've been working on for like I don't know three four years now, um, and might be able might be able to finally start doing that. Um, that involves around movies, but has nothing to do with movies at the same time. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's like having the having the space and the help. You know, I, I had a guy helping me out in in Tampa, but uh, basically for the most part, he was just working the front counter while I, you know, did all the shipping and everything else. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but having my daughter involved, she'll be a lot more involved and I'll be giving her more responsibilities as time goes on to free myself up to explore other, you know, other things. Um, you know, Jesse, I know Jesse has been putting out films through Cauldron. Uh, I almost, I was so close to buying the rights to two of my favorite movies from the nineties. And, um, it just kind of fell through because they didn't have elements. Um, you know, so I was very close to starting my own label also. Um, I'm not saying that won't happen, but it may, I don't know, you know, we'll see what happens. I, I mean, uh, I'm just trying to keep things going and make money to keep the store open, you know? I well, mean, it's, yeah, you have life revolves around the store. So you have a hustle uh, in your DNA. I can tell. So I, I'm excited to see what comes up next. Yeah, Mike, thank you so much for taking some time out. Um, do, do you have a, I know that you don't like social media, but the fact that you are on it, do you have a preferred place where you, you hope people can, can find you and kind of grow your, you know, following on a particular platform? Um, I use Facebook probably the most. Okay. Um, Instagram, my daughter is going to be in charge of all of the social media when I get up to Tennessee. Okay. So you will, I will, the store will be more active on social media once that happens. 
um like she's gung-ho about starting a tiktok to forever like shit that i would never do she's <laughs> down for uh-huh. um so uh you know facebook is probably the the thing i use the most then instagram i don't understand twitter um so i never use twitter i have a twitter i don't know if anybody talks about me on twitter because i fucking hate twitter <laughs> yeah so you know you can get a hold of me anyway you know Perfect. i don't really care if i get people i mean i get notifications for twitter if anybody mentions me or asks me stuff so yeah, yeah. you know i'll try to answer uh, i didn't say i think i don't know i haven't seen a twitter notification in a while but um <laughs> but yeah i mean anyways fine email phone okay. calls you know whatever Perfect. Well, thanks so much for your time. And uh, yeah, like, well, maybe after you're set up, you know, if you're opening the store up in March, maybe sometime over the summer or fall, we can uh, have you back on and just kind of check in how it's going. But yeah, man, definitely. Um, appreciate your time here today. We'll, uh, we'll, do, we'll talk about uh, Christian Punk from the 90s. <laughs> I can talk about it for at least an hour. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Mike. All right, man. Have a good one. All right. And uh, welcome back uh, after the interview. And now we're going to be talking about police story which is directed by Jackie Chan and Chi Hua Chin, who is the executive director, whatever that means. Um, I just want to note, I really don't like IMDb's description of the movie. I don't think it's very good. Uh, A virtuous Hong Kong police officer must clear his good name when the drug lord he is after frames him for the murder of a dirty cop. What's the problem with that? I, I, I feel like that is much too late in the film to say that's, what it's about like i feel like well, that happens like what over an hour into the movie like not i suppose they should just kind of say he's i mean it, really the movie is about like i mean i guess it does kind of lead to that but like the whole murder of the dirty cop thing is like so much later into the movie so uh let's uh, let's hear from i think chris went first last so adam uh, let's hear from you what'd you think of police story um well my favorite friday the 13th film is probably part four no um <laughs> uh, police story um it's been actually a little while. I didn't rewatch it during this as I've, I've seen it. I saw it earlier this year and I loved it. I thought it was absolutely just batshit crazy. It was funny. It was thrilling. It just kind of ticked all the boxes for what you want in an action film. Cause like, I'm not a big action film guy, like really at all. Um, it's just, it's just not really just my thing. Um, especially, you know, like those James Cameron ones where it's all just bomb or is it Michael Bay? I can't recall. Um, one of those two. Um, but you know, the ones are just all shooting and jumping and bombastic loud noises and explosions and Def Leppard and all that shit. Um, I that's just not my cup of tea. Play story is definitely my kind of action film because it has really amazing set pieces. Some of the best sort of, you know, stunt work and sequencing and set pieces I've ever seen in a film, mm-hmm. especially that opening in the, um, in that shanty town. That's one of the most thrilling opening sort of scenes I've ever seen in a film. Yeah. Amazing. Um, it's funny as hell as well. There's a lot of really good sequences. Like Jackie Chan is a proper physical actor, whether it be, you know, his, obviously his skill, you know, in martial arts, but physical comedy does really well as well. He's kind of like if Buster Keaton knew Kung Fu, it's kind yeah. of like the best way to describe Jackie Chan. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a great film. Jackie Chan was great. The direction also, as well as the acting was all fantastic. 
Um, it was really, the story was really engrossing. It was, it was a good story. And any film that has Maggie Chung is just automatically good. So, you know, yeah. You know, that's... it's interesting you bring up the Buster Keaton thing because honestly, my favorite sequence of the movie is the telephones. Yeah, it's that's, such that's a, like my that's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Some people could say it probably goes on a little bit too long, but no, he just makes it work, you know. He just... Well, like it ends with that, um, how, what is it, that that pencil flip, which is, I was like adding that just like a little bit of flair to it. It was like, it made it all worth it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great, it's a great sequence. It's a, just a really nice sort of moment of levity because the film can get a little bit, you know, it's, it, it does have some harder moments, you know, it's still an action film first and foremost, so. It was nice to have that sort of moment of levity, even though horrible things were happening on the other side of the phone. And he was not really very... Yeah, like there's a rape joke in that. Yeah, horrible things are happening on the phone, but, you know, the way he's playing with the phones is funny, so it ignores that horrible things happen. Uh, Uh, They Shoot Pictures has this at 1300. Okay. uh, Which is, you know, honestly, like as much as I love this movie, it seems a little high, but like, that's fine, whatever. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I, I, I won't begrudge them of it, no. Yeah. Um, it's the highest it's ever been is 1193. But one thing I, so he, I can't remember where I read this somewhere, but he built this entire story around the action sequences. So he basically like had this cool idea for four action sequences. And he talks about the movie as like, things he had to do to get to these four action sequences. So he's, he talks about it like, okay, they're going to be driving, like if they're going to be in the shanty town and like, if they're going to be fighting in this area, like what kind of, what, what's their motivation to get there? And then they kind of built like some characters and then he's like, okay, one of them should be probably a cop. That's a good idea. So he, he built this entire thing around like these cool action ideas he had in his head. And there's a tie in here. Maybe we should play a drinking game because I'm going to bring up Action USA again. But that's exactly how Jon Stewart, the, not the comedian, but the stuntman, built the action usa or he's a stunt guy like it's all he knows right so jackie chan all he knew was physical comedy he was a circus performer in like traditional kind of chinese opera and like chinese circus and like that's his background and like he knew physical and he got this edward uh, edward tang i believe is the other writer who yeah, was like an actual writer okay perfect and so they built like he got with somebody who could actually write I was like, I want to make a film with these like amazing kind of, you know, revolutionary action sequences. And they uh, trained like crazy the, from the physical side. He had like his little troop that went with him. And, and, and if you look closely and pause it, it's like the same people, even if they're good guys or bad guys that are kind of getting broken in all these different scenes and destroyed in all these different scenes. And he just rehearsed these action sequences and kind of built a story around it. But it was a story that was pretty good. It was okay. And it was engrossing and you know, it's better than a lot of the other action stuff that gets put out. So I think it like stood out on the fact that you're like totally in it, in the action scenes, but then there's also enough of a story to kind of keep you around and keep you invested. So I, well, I loved it. I mean, it's, it's always uh, interesting because the, you know, the, the plot, uh, let me not get tongue-tied. The plot to me comes off like Edward Tang, I think he said his name, right? I think he watched Dirty Harry in preparation for this. <laughs> probably because that like when they start getting into like the due process stuff i'm like that is the exact same thing they did in dirty harry like when he like it's true ah you messed up you you can't do that to him and then he's like ah, i'm just gonna go a revenge route anyway it's fine i think that's just like a staple of like cop movies isn't it where it's just like yeah it's just it, it's a the chief is a, a is, plot he, point in dirty harry like it's so yeah bad. and it's a big point in this one too so it kind of sticks out in my mind a lot 
the loose cannon copy. Yeah. You can't be going around here doing, you know, going by your own rules. And all that. It's, <laughs> which, it's, which, you uh, know, the, the martial arts stuff and, you know, your samurai were obviously a huge inspiration on Western. So it's actually would be kind of interesting for it to almost be reversed in that sense since Dirty Harry came out in the early 70s and this came out in 85. I mean, obviously it was an inspirational movie in, regardless on both sides. So, yeah, I mean, it definitely is like a staple of the genre. It's just like, Dirty Harry was like half of what I thought about him. Lethal Weapon, weirdly. Yeah, because it's a Christmas movie. Yeah. (laughs) There's another uh, movie from Hong Kong um, that came out uh, that boiling uh, hard boiled. Sorry, Mm -hmm. hard boiled. Have you all seen that? Yeah, Yeah. I haven't seen it because it's just it's just like unavailable and like a decent format, at least in Region B. Anyway, it's not Um, much better Region A. Yeah, so I'd love to see it. I've heard it's great. It it's good, and uh, and then what's the other one that the Criterion released to Hard Boiled? Uh, right? Yeah. Um, if you uh, didn't ask me, the I'd killer know. is it the killer? Yeah, 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 yeah. So both of these movies, um, I, I think, have an interesting thing that Jackie Chan does. But in Hard Boiled, they do it with guns and ammo. Like if somebody gets shot. They don't get shot three times. They get shot like 300 times, mm-hmm. like as they're dying. <laughs> like, it's not like, they, you know, everything is like big. And also like in these fight scenes, like if they're getting kicked and if they're get, like, if they're in the middle of these like fights, it's not like one punch and they're down. Right. It's like, it's this, you know, there's like a lot of action built into each and a lot of choreography built into like each scene. So I just thought it was kind of an interesting, like, you know, you have this coming out in 85 and then you have hard boil coming out in 92 and then the killer coming out, not I think a few years before that. Um, so it does feel like there was this sort of, I'd be curious to see more films from Hong Kong, like action films from Hong Kong from kind of around that era, uh, because it feels like maybe there's more of, of that's like maybe a style of the time. Um, but it's super fun to watch. It's really great to watch. I was trying to look up when the killer came out. It was yeah, 89. 89. Yeah, mm-hmm. and before that, John Woo made the better, better tomorrow movies. One and seen two, <laughs> and three make, later. Was there a third? Did he make Infernal Affairs as well, or am I mixing him up with another director? Uh, it, I don't think Infernal. You're talking about the one that got remade, and then uh, Scorsese Pardon? won an Oscar. For? The one, yeah, the one that was um, the the Departed. Yeah, no, that's not. That's I don't not think that. Who's that um, then? That's let me look it up. Me. I think I don't even know that that's Andrew Lau. So yeah, yeah, the same guy starring it alongside the ghost Tony Lung. Which I mean, we're all forgetting John Wayne's best film, which is Face Off. My favorite <laughs> thing about Face Off is when they take the faces off. <laughs> face Off's a great, great Face Off is uh, okay. Maybe I'm gonna stop myself. I was about it, to say Face Off is a great Pete film. Nick Cage. It's a, it's a fun film. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it could only have been made in the 90s <laughs> only could only have been made then it's just like that's some other branch of like you know like space jam you just like mm-hmm. you'd wonder like what the fuck these people were even thinking about when making this stuff probably i think just every studio was required to make their producers do coke yeah like... that's, that's the only thing that can make sense really it's the only way that these films could have gotten greenlit um What's y'all's favorite? What's y'all's favorite scene in Police Story? 
uh, favorite fight? Uh, the, the 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 car chase in the shanty town. So the shanty town in general is cool, but when they all just decide, fuck it, let's just all drive through this town. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love, and it's it's like something I don't know. Like the way it's gonna sound like a weird way to describe it. The only way I can really describe, you know, how I felt looking at it is like you knowing you're a kid playing with like a, a, a toy truck and you're just sort of like smashing it through everything. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're not even really playing with it. You're just kind of jerking it around, sort of throwing it down hills and stuff. Like that's, that's, it just really reminded me of that, you know, the way to just sort of literally just like drive through houses down this hill, down this shanty town. Um, yeah. Loved it. I don't know. It just brought out just, it just brought out the kid and me just watching that. Um, you know, just a really, really cool sequence. And I'd say it was a bitch to get right. Um, because I'd say I'd say they probably could only have done it once. So it would have been a hell to kind of build everything again. Um, yeah, that's that's probably my favorite. That was probably my favorite sequence anyway. The part I really loved in that sequence was um, it's a really simple. I'm not gonna say simple stunt. I, I couldn't do it, but it, it, you know, it, when you compare it to a lot of things, it's the umbrella part where he's like trying to hook the umbrella like in the window, like trying yeah. to uh, hold himself up uh, mm-hmm. on the bus. Watching that, it really does bring into like how s- simple of an idea, I guess the simple idea it is, but actually watching it executed, you're like, there's something so impressive about that. Like, cause it feels, cause you know, there isn't like these cutaways or anything. You're like, they are legitimately on a bus trying to hook this on. And that's just really cool. Like, you know, you can watch big budget action films and, you know, people doing like these, things that appear dangerous, but of course, you know, a lot of it's wires and that's fine. It's all safety, but you know, what makes an action movie more fun is when they say, screw safety. Let's just see what we can do. Totally. And I also laugh at how much glass was broken in the movie. Um, like <laughs> in the mall. last part. Yeah. At the mall. <laughs> just an irresponsible amount of glass was broken. Anyways. Oh, sorry. No, sorry. You go ahead, Zach. I was just gonna say, I wonder if that ins- that was like part of the inspiration for uh, John Wick Three. I don't know if you guys have watched the third one yet, where he keeps getting thrown through like different glass, like statues and stuff, like repeatedly <laughs> for a long time. I haven't seen any of the John Wick films. I was just, I was just gonna wonder. I wonder what budget was bigger, this film's glass budget or <laughs> Fat Girl's suntan lotion budget? Fat Girl, no, no, no debate. It was Fat That's Girl. That's what I'm curious about. <laughs> I need to, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and get to the bottom of it. <laughs> We're gonna open up a investigative podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really funny. Yeah, just so much so much glass broken. Um, but I, I don't know that like this is not a movie that I feel that there's like a lot to dissect, right? It's a it's a super fun movie. Like like I think it's pretty clear that it's it, it is an indictment of the Hong Kong police. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff that the police outside of Jackie Chan are doing are just stupid bureaucratic bullshit that, you know, they could have, they could like the whole plot could have been solved if the captain, you know, just actually did his fucking job um, and was not caught up in bureaucracy and paperwork and due process. I I suppose we can kind of say the same thing about any kind of, um, yeah, any kind of rogue cop film of, (laughs) of a, you know, a a loose sort of uh, like a, like a dirty Harry type. Um, you know, if, if, if the guy, if the main cop is allowed to just do his job or whatever, but I think this film in, in particular, 
it just it really came across to me as as an indictment over just to do just the legal system in in hong kong in general and just how ineffective the police can be um but i, I got i don't really see any other allegories or any other subtext but that was that was pretty clear it seemed to me that that jackie chan for whatever reason um didn't think the police were very good so he said i'm going to pretend to be a policeman in a movie and i'll be better than them all and then i'll do more times yeah in that way, it would be um, uh, Kurosawa's uh, movie Ikiru would be a great companion piece to this, right? Because uh, that's all. That would, it's oh, really? So it's a hundred percent about a man who is able to achieve great things by being a little bit better than the bureaucrats. Okay. Um, uh, and and the great thing is like it's a very parks and recreation plot. Like it's kind of just a simple mundane task in a city that like just can't get done because of the heavy bureaucracy there. And like how this one guy basically has to kind of like throw a middle finger to life and live free in order to like get stuff done in this system that doesn't encourage it. But um, yeah, anyways, if, if y'all haven't seen it, then that, that joke doesn't land. Um, it's not an action movie. <laughs> no, but I'm going to watch it because I too hate bureaucracy. <laughs> right. I'm going to watch it because I like parks and recreation. Yeah, that's Boom. good reason as any. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, parks and recreation. Yeah, it's good. Parks and Rec is funny. That's so funny. I only started rewatching it yesterday because I was bored at home and I was just doing nothing and I was working on my laptop and I said, you know what I haven't watched in a while? Parks and Recreation. And naturally I skipped season one because that's garbage. <laughs> so I just went straight into season two. One of my favorite things, this is going to be my only, t- I'm going to try to limit this tangent, but one of my favorite things about Park and Recreation is the guy created whose name I can't remember. He always uh, talks Michael about Schur. That. Yeah. He always uh, talks about that joke that Chris Pratt had about like it says that you like he's on like WebMD Inter- or whatever. Yeah, internet, internet connectivity. Connection. He was yeah. so pissed. He's like, that is such a good joke, and it was ad libbed, <laughs> and it pisses me off. Yeah, uh, that's 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 one of the funniest moments. And Leslie, I think I know what you have. It says you have network connectivity problems. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the writer talks like, like, God, I wish I wrote that joke. <laughs> Oh, Chris Pratt's an asshole, but that was funny. Um, someone else is probably an asshole, but was funny is Jackie Chan, who's a star of this film. Um, oh man, are we what? gonna dive in deep? To some no, we're not. <laughs> no, we're not. Uh, I just wanted to use it as a segue back. You know, just you know, just like to try and sort of get us back on the road in a in a cohesive way. Um, like. Jackie Chan, like when you think of Jackie Chan, I more so think of his American movies. This is this is actually the first time watching Jackie Chan not speak English in a film. Um, because I've only ever seen like his American stuff. Um, have you guys seen much of his like I know is is he he's in the is he the drunken master or that his Kung Fu series? Mm-hmm. Have you guys seen much of Jackie have, Chan's actual Kung I, Fu movies? No. I mean, I've seen Rush Hour. <laughs> well that's that's all i've really seen is rush hour and the one with the one he did with owen wilson what are they called shanghai nights or something oh yeah and he did he do like around the world in 80 days yes yep. he did yeah. he did do that too yep. yeah those are the only ones i've seen like as american ones so this it was kind of interesting seeing him more in like his his natural habitat that's well, probably a weird way to say that like rush hour he's kind of the straight man in that like more compared to Chris Tucker, I mean, he well, played. he that was, he was always like that in the American films, and he's always sort of played with the comedic guy beside him. So obviously, in Rush Hour, it's Chris Tucker, and the Shanghai Nights films, it's Owen Wilson. Mm-hmm. So he's always kind of like the straight guy in the American movies. So it was nice to see him kind of just cut loose. 
Yeah, yeah, and just yeah, because I really didn't. I, this is gonna sound bad. I just didn't realize he was as funny as he was, honestly. Yeah, no, after, I'm the he same. Was, after he was in the U.S., he did a movie called Forbidden Kingdom, which I think is kind of fun. If y'all haven't seen it, they, he finally paired with Jet Li. That's yeah, I've seen the poster for it. Um, I haven't seen the film. I just I just, haven't seen a lot of kung fu films anyway, but. Yeah, just two at like legends, basically, right? Before like yeah. they got a little bit too old to be able to really doing like the things they both love to do. Uh, it's a nice kind of end of career movie. I think it's fun. But some of the, yeah, uh, I wouldn't say I've seen like hundreds of his earlier stuff, but I've seen a few. I just, Legends of the Drunken Master, Super Cop. Uh, I'm just scrolling through real quick just to make sure I'm not. Am I right in saying Super Cop is kind of related to Police Story? Or am I, I was reading, I remember reading about the sequels and this has like a kind of weird this kind of this is like a weird series structure. Is where, that, yes. is, is that mm-hmm. the movie in Hot Fuzz where <laughs> Nick Frost like picks up? He's like Super Cop, the cop that cannot be stopped. It, it <laughs> might be actually. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah, it has uh, Michelle, the horror Michelle, film, yeah, action. It's amazing, uh, and it is actually called Police Story Three: Super Cop. So yes. Oh, there we go. Yeah, because I remember reading about this on the Wikipedia that like just changes titles halfway through. Yeah, I'm on the Wikipedia. Please story two, please story, please story, please story two, and then Super Cop and Super Cop two, and then there's like a few other ones. They really went the Dirty Harry route with this, just giving them random titles. Um, Deadpool. Yeah, exactly. Like there's one called First Strike. Like that would not surprise me if that was like a Clint Eastwood Dirty Harry movie. First Strike, you know. Which. Uh... Deadpool is great because when I worked in a theater, we were showing the first Deadpool movie and we had like these, <laughs> these uh, boomer aged people come in and say, Oh look, Clint Eastwood's got a new movie coming out. And I was just like, Oh, I'm not going to correct it. Please come see this movie. <laughs> just imagine their reactions watching Ryan Reynolds get up to all kinds of fucking nonsense. Uh, and I'm like, Who remembers Deadpool from the dirty Harry series. It's like, I don't think Clint Eastwood remembers that. Movie. Well, that's the only one. That's the only one I can remember other than, like like the ones that have titles you know like obviously after like a little while after like the second movie they kind of have to they kind of gave him so you know sudden you know, titles yeah sudden impact that's the other one yeah like <laughs> yeah the, the deadpool was like the one that i could remember off the top of my head um, is that the one with jim carrey yes i have no idea i I've believe it is that. that's a wild one um the speaking of wild so there's a connection between uh Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee. He was an uncredited actor in Enter the Dragon. Um, oh, just okay. kind of port, port of trivia here. But then he made a few years later. He made one which I, I think is the only other one I've really seen. Um, there's there's two that I've kind of seen. So he went made one called uh, Shaolin Wooden Man, which not a lot of people talk about, but is really great. And then um, I haven't seen Drunken Master, but I saw The Young Master, and that movie is awesome. So. Again, all personal stuff aside, the guy was just this incredible physical actor and, and, and knew how to use his body so well and was great at martial arts. So hmm. his movies are very entertaining if that's if that's what you're into. I suppose just two things then be sort of as we come to a close on this. Um, first of all, Maggie Chung is in this film, and I love Maggie Chung. Um, so I just wanted to say that. Um, she does not really yeah, give she's great in it. She, she, I think she's underutilized a lot in the second half. Yeah, she is. Like the yeah. first half, she's awesome. I was going to say, she doesn't really get a chance to do a whole lot. Um, but yeah, Maggie Chung is great in everything she does, and she's a treasure, and we should all treasure Maggie Chung. And then the only other question I had for you guys was, what was the Friday the 13th movie that had Crispin Glover in it? 
that's uh was that five, five or four five it's okay five because okay, that's was... the one um that doesn't have jason <laughs> no that might not be the one then well technically it... jason J- yeah because that's the one where well, i know jason the one you're talking i know okay. I, yeah we won't spoil for anyone who is not yet on uni- initiated with the friday the 13th films but i could have uh, swore it was it four i could have swore it was four because i think it's the one because isn't four where Tommy's first introduced, Tommy Jarvis, and he's you know staying what, in one you're house. Correct. It is okay. It is. I knew it was yeah, four. Right. He gets killed with the um, oh the corkscrew, I think. I'll I'll trust your judgment on that one. I just yeah. remember. Hey, I remember he, the kill better than I remember. <laughs> yeah, he he has a really good dance scene in it, and yes. that's just yeah, that's, that's probably the, the most that's probably the most Crispin Glover thing I can say, <laughs> is that he has a good dance scene in a slasher movie. Um. Yeah. Just yeah. I was just I was just curious. I knew he was in one of them. I couldn't remember which. So I think we accidentally stumbled on a theme for this episode outside of Friday the Thirteenth. Both movies have strong female legends that were underutilized in their roles. Yes, that is true. We did that on purpose. That's why we used these two. Who was underutilized in the Friday the Thirteenth movies? No. What we were talking about police story. (laughs) Oh. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> okay, yeah. Please, story to be not. Yeah, I get, I get you there. Sorry, Friday Thirteenth was just much more pressing on my mind. Okay, and we're coming into our last segment, which, as always, is any other business. Just a time for us to talk about a film that we've seen recently that we liked. It doesn't have to be Criterion. It doesn't have to even be technically good. It's just something that we enjoyed. And we want to give a shout out to. Uh, I'm gonna go go first on this one. Um, so I've been. Using spooky season as an excuse to try and watch more horror films. I'm a big horror fan in general, but I don't really get, I don't really put enough time aside to, to watch horror films a lot. So I've been trying over the last couple of weeks to watch more. And that led me on to finally using my shutter subscription, which I've had for about six months, but I've used maybe once in that whole time um, to watch that, um, that George A. Romero film that got rediscovered. Um, what was that called again, Zach? The Amusement Park. Amusement Park, yeah. I used it once in that six months to watch that, which was great. But uh, I went exploring just to see what was on there that I haven't really sort of thought about watching. And I came across this really cool film um, from 1960 by this dude called John Llewellyn Moxie. Uh, It's called The City of the Dead. Um, It's just one of those creepy, kind of lower budget, spooky horror films that were sort of more about the atmosphere than it was about the scares. Um, Mm has has christopher lee in it so you know automatically that it's good and it's a it's a cool little black and white picture it was only it was very short just over an hour long but basically um christopher lee is this uh, professor in a, in a university in, in massachusetts uh who sort of specializes in um in anthropology but then also sort of talks a lot about the witch trials um and he, he gets he has one particular sort of student you know the type she's young and she's blonde she's pretty and um, he convinces her to go to this small town to do a research project on, on some witch trials. And when she's there, the townsfolk are all a little bit off and she starts reading about some weird rituals that might still be going on. And it, it just kind of descends into madness from there. But the film was just absolutely stunning to look at. Really amazing atmosphere, sort of gloomy, spooky shadows, fog you know it's it was honestly it was just it was a really startlingly well 
sort of put together movie for what it was like I'm, I'm like I never heard of any of the other actors apart from Christopher Lee in this film never heard of the filmmaker I'd never heard of the film until I just was just searching through to see what they had and it honestly just like kind of blew me away a bit it doesn't have like the best average sort of rating on letterbox it's like a 3.4 but I think it's underrated it's if you have like a spare hour 20 minutes I'd really recommend. I don't know if it's actually in your region. I know it's obviously an Ireland uh, version of Shudder. And this is City of the Living Dead, right? City of the Living. No, yeah, City, City, of, City of the Dead, not City uh, of the okay. Living Dead. Because when you said you hadn't heard of the director, I'm like, you've never heard of Paul Jackson. I see why I'm confused now. Yes, no, no, no. It's it is yeah. This is a different guy, John Llewellyn Moxie. So the the City of the Dead is is the name of this film from 1960. Um, if you get a chance to watch it, we have it on Shudder and Tubi. You have it on Shudder and Tubi. Awesome watch it if you have an air it's just it's just a really rich atmospheric film um and it's it's not like schlocky or anything like that either i know sometimes with christopher lee horror films it can be a little bit schlocky but this is not mm-hmm. like it's actually it's 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 played serious um yeah really good film i highly yeah. recommend it I, I think i saw you give it a high rating because i was like yeah i, I gave it a watch four. list so i think i added it when i saw i gave it a four and a half because i thought yeah. it was i thought it was great yeah. I thought it was like out of the like I watched this just at the end of September, so this this wasn't part of my sort of thirty one days of of horror films, which I know I know you guys are trying to do as well. This wasn't part of that, um, but it was yeah, it just blew me away. It's probably the best horror film I've seen since you know in the time I spent with this at the end of September through all the ones I've watched so far this month. That and the Bride of Frankenstein are probably like the top two that I've seen. And it's so only seventy eight minutes it's perfect i know this is why i love this is why i love old horror films they knew how to tell their story in a compact time no need for this bullshitty two and a half hour run times you know i I might actually throw that on tonight because uh i'm in the mood for something moody yeah i'd love to know what you think because i it blew me away and i'd I'd like to be vindicated that (laughs) someone else rates it higher than the average i'm gonna sit there no matter if i like i'm just like it's trash (laughs) <laughs> one step well, oh man no you won't be able to you'll you'll like it too much to be able to talk shit about it um all right chris what about you what if anything you want to give a shout out to so quickly this month i've seen i started off by seeing friday the 13th then i saw uh, an old giallo movie called the night evelyn came out of the grave so, and, stop here. what's friday the 13th i've never heard of that before it's <laughs> this low budget thing Okay. Um, cool. You know the craziest okay. thing? My check I didn't know this. Just for fun, I'm kind of finding like box office numbers for some of these films if I can find them and I'm adding them into my reviews lately. Check out this. If you adjusted for $2021, not in $1980, but $2021, it was made for $1.8 million and made $203 million. Yep. Like some producers had a good day. <laughs> and all like, they had to do was rip off Halloween. That's all they had to right? do. Right? <laughs> and put it in a camp so uh friday the 13th night evelyn came out of the grave which is a cool kind of giallo film that actually introduces like gothic elements into the story the guy has like a kind of a very gothic like torture chamber that he brings women down into um it's not exploitation at all like it doesn't get graphic it's just like that's just like an element in the story it's kind of it's it's cool then uh santa sangre technically counts as a horror so that's the next one in my yorowski uh run and it's beautiful film. Like Zach, we can talk more about this in a different podcast because I know we're already running long. But like, like you—that's your favorite, right? Of his stuff. Uh, uh, yes, so- yes. 
It's so good. I, it, it's, I, it, I feel like, I don't know, I can't tell which one I like better between Holy Mountain and this one, but like this one feels like a more complete film and like just constructed film. Um, um, yeah, I, I, Holy Mountain is fun if from a, like, I don't want to say meta because it only really gets meta at the very end, but that's kind of the most memorable part for Holy Mountain, like that very end decision. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Dead Sagre feels like, I guess it keeps that film element to it the whole way through. And I think that's, I just like when he actually does that, which I like Holy Mountain, but yeah, it's my favorite just because it feels strange. Yeah, it's great. Um, then I saw Friday the 13th part two. Then I saw this found footage film from Mexico called 1974, The Possession of Altair. Um, it's okay. It has some cool elements to it. Certainly nothing you haven't seen before. And it has an ending. You know, sometimes when they try that, like, kind of shock ending, sometimes it works. Sometimes you're like, nah. I think this is one of those ones for me that was like, yeah, okay. Like, I get it. It was like not what you expect, but it wasn't, I don't think it was done great. Um, but still like a well, for a first time horror found footage, you know, director, there's some good stuff in it. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, which I'd never seen before. So I, I thought I had, I knew the song, but I watched it and I realized I had not seen it before. Um, and then the sequel, the, the, the sort of spiritual companion to The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave is The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, which is a great Jalo title. Um, and a pretty, pretty good movie. I liked Evelyn better, but this is, it's pretty good. It also has some of the um, gothic elements to it. And then just saw the, finally saw Gamara. So I can now say I've seen the first, uh, the flying turtle that shoots fire, um, kaiju movie. And we're going to slowly, my the, son. that the arrow set, is it? Yeah. 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 And my son watched it and he's obsessed with this flying turtle now. And like, it's, <laughs> I, I feel bad for him. Like, I don't want him to be that kid that is like referencing Gamera to his friends at school. <laughs> and they're like, what? Um, and he gets beat up because he's Yo, yo, Gaba, Gaba? No. Yeah. Gamera. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, he was already asking his grandparents on the phone, like, we're going to watch Gamera. And, you know, of course, they're like, what? So anyway, I was like, oh, no, I'm doing it already. But the movies are fun. So I'm going to we're going to probably watch that second one soon. But, yeah, that's my October so far. Um, if you all haven't seen Gamera, I wouldn't say it's amazing, but just it, like Godzilla was like such an amazing first movie. And then the series kind of went off in a direction which is campy and fun. Gamera kind of started in campy and fun. It, um so that's it's a different vibe, but it's uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a fun movie. Um, I'll, I'll kind of quickly just go over my October. I'm not going to stay too long on any of them. Um, I finally got to use Chris's uh, access to the European movie thing. Um, okay. I watched uh, a movie called The She Butterfly, which is like a Eastern European vampire TV movie. Okay. Not like an hour long. It wasn't bad. It it was like it had a, like a weird mix of like. A lot of comedy to it, which I wasn't expecting, but it's it's interesting. It's nice to see like a different lore uh, for vampire vampirism that I hadn't quite seen before. I think the ending mm -hmm. is what people mostly remember it. Um, I rewatched uh, the limited series Midnight Mass. Uh, I watched it for a second time. Uh, fantastic people, just watch it. It's great. Um, I watched Day of the Beast, uh, which I didn't like as good as per uh, Perdita Durango but still thought it was fun. It's a, honestly, it's more of a Christmas movie than anything, but maybe I'll retry it again at Christmas. Uh, Rewatch Jeepers Creepers because that's a nostalgia trip for me. Um, it, it, it holds, I think it holds up pretty well. I, I realize as I get older, it has a lot of goofy elements to it, but I actually think it's on purpose more than anything that it's a little goofy and it kind of makes the horror stand out a little bit more. 
Mm-hmm. Um, watched the Slumber Party Massacre, nice. which was a lot more meta than I remember it being. Like, there's a lot of meta elements to it with the comedy. Probably a few too many, like, cat scares, but, you know, I liked <laughs> it. It was fun. Um, rewatched The Call, which was the first movie I ever did for this segment on our first episode. So I rewatched that. Uh, it's a great little mind bender horror, which made me that watch That was a Korean more. one, wasn't it? Yes, yes, South Korean. Uh, that was the one I, 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 if I remember correctly, is the one that were, that when you described it, it reminded me of that shitty Keanu Reeves and yeah. Sandra Bullock movie. What's yes, the uh, Lake, the Lake House. House. Yes. Yeah, it's better than the Lake House, <laughs> <laughs> um, which actually made me watch Triangle, which is a, like a time loop slasher movie. Before that's a really good film. Yeah, I, I love it. It's it, it's a really yeah, fun. Like um, it's very unique. Uh, and then I got to, I had to travel, but I got to go see, oh man, I thought I was going to get away with not mispronouncing anything this episode. Titan. It, it's titanium in English. So I'm going to go. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know the one you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I went to go see that, um, which was great. Um, it was very different than I expected, uh, which I, which I kind of knew going in because she had done raw and raw is different for a cannibalism movie. Um which then I watched Possessor, which was the last horror movie I watched, which was my second time watching it. Fantastic movie. It's a uh, baby Cronenberg, second movie, um, really mind bendy, really artsy, really violent. So, you know, I guess it doesn't fall too far from the tree, so to speak. But that was my October. Calling and him like, baby Cronenberg is kind of like the most Cronenberg way of describing his child. It just makes you think of him just like, like sort of, pulling him out of himself in like a body <laughs> horror way it's sort of like i don't know i don't know it's probably like a weird cronenbergy picture in my head it's like the most cronenberg way of describing your son <laughs> yeah that's sorry so that was weird that's uh now a movie i want to see from david cronenberg <laughs> yeah. him and his son I, I... can collab oh wow <laughs> Do y'all ever feel this way as collectors? You know, people talk about what's your holy grail, what's your grail and all that kind of stuff. And like, I, I get that. But like, there are certain movies where I'm kind of willing to pay the eBay price over time. Like I'll wrestle with myself, but eventually I'll pay the price. So the whole idea of a grail has been kind of tough for me. So grails have to do more with like movies being available. And I just have to quickly mention that the movie that I never thought would get a uh, limited special edition release from 88 films or from anybody, but 88 films happened to put it out was a cat three film from Hong Kong from the nineties called Ricky O story of Ricky. And uh, when that film got released, like it's y'all know how excited I've been about action USA. I've never been excited about like a a movie getting a release uh, more than that. But this one probably was doubled the the surprise and excitement around that because I just, if y'all haven't seen this movie, I would like, you have to see it. Number one. And also, I can't believe it got released in this like beautiful package. So I'll be watching that soon. But oh, I I didn't bring it up, and I definitely wanted to talk about that. So I have to mention it. It looked great. Like when the picture you sent, it looked really awesome. Beautiful set and just a cool as hell film. Just like wild. Like it. It. I'm, this is gonna sound really like people are gonna call the police on me when I say this. But like, if there was ever like a Chris film, and I know if anybody's seen Ricky O, they're like, "What the hell's wrong with you?" Like it's a really messed up film. But the fact that they're having fun with like all this insanity going on, I just love it. I could watch movies like that all day long. So that's it. <laughs> that's my, the ultimate Chris movie. <laughs> cool. 
That wraps up this week's episode of They Live By Film. If you want to read more of our thoughts, visit theylivebyfilm.com. You can also follow our Letterboxd, Reddit, and Instagram accounts from the links in the description. For now, take care.